All right, it's about six minutes up. We're just going to test Sandra here. Lee Harris, I believe I see you there. If you could just unmute your um, unmute your mic and say hi, and we should be good to go in about six minutes. Is that better? There you go. I can hear you. You can hear you can hear me. Okay. Yes, I had a little trouble. I I thought I needed to sign in again, but I, ah, I guess I didn't. No problem. All right, so uh, we will start at 4 p.m. on the dot. I'm just going to go on uh, mute right here, but we'll be ready to go. Lee, I'll see you at uh, at 4 p.m. Okay. Thanks. That's fine. Bye-bye. See you soon. Or talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Hopefully, if you want, you can just you can just uh, mute your mic if you want, and then just okay, unmute I'm, it. I, was, unmute I, it wasn't, I didn't. I didn't want to lose you again. Oh yeah, no, you, you, it'll be okay. We'll, you'll be able to get me again. All right, thanks. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye.
Greetings and good afternoon and welcome to the Lee Smith Show. Today, our um, special guest, our great guest, live guest is Lee Harris, uh, an author I have uh, admired, looked up to for many years, certainly in the, in the, um, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 when Lee was writing some of the most, uh, not just perceptive essays, but, uh, but, but really sort of cutting through a whole bunch of different material to explain what was going on, the different sort of struggle that we were seeing, not only around the world, but within the United States itself. And, and so then Lee's um, a, a, a seminal book Lee wrote in 2004 is Civilization and Its Enemies, The Next Stage of History. In 2007, I know Lee is going to correct me with stuff I have wrong here. Um, in 2007, his book, The Suicide of Reason, Radical Islam's Threat to the West. And then in 2010, um, as I said, Lee has been writing not only about the um, globe shape of the global conflict, but also the different issues that setting us right here in the United States. And so then in 2010, Lee wrote The Next American Civil War, The Populist Revolt, against the liberal elite. Now, when Lee and I have spoken in the past, he um, it, it wasn't a boast when he said, because it was entirely true, when he said he had written about and explained the phenomenon of Donald Trump and how Donald Trump caught so many people's attention and um, not just caught their attention, but galvanized them in 2000, starting in June. 2015. And so that's that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, not, not necessarily Donald Trump, but we are going to talk about the different the different issues that seem to have uh, that seem to be driving our factions of our country further and further apart. So without uh, without uh, much further ado, I want to introduce and thank him again, Lee Smith, uh, Lee Smith, Lee Harris for being here this afternoon. Thank you so much, Lee. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here myself. All right, terrific. Um, so yeah, actually, if, if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit how you did get from the, from the books writing about the writing about 9-11 to writing about what, what, what happened and how we got to the, the populist revolt. The, my, my route was a little bit circuitous. I, I did not hit, I was not intending directly to write about any American current phenomena. Uh, I was really following my, my first book was really kind of concerned with what is it that makes a civilization? Mm -hmm. And my second book, I was concerned with what is it that makes a reasonable civilization? As is one that values huh. reason and uh, reasonable discourse as opposed to, say, violence. And the third book, the question was, how do some societies end up valuing liberty and actually being open to liberty? That is, why are some societies notable for their, their history of freedom? Hmm. Uh, in pursuing that, that, that theme, I, I went back through, uh, I decided to look back through history and things like the English Civil War, uh, things that going back as far as the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, and one of the things I began noticing is that the people who I refer to as being crazy for liberty oftentimes were not exactly uh, law-abiding citizens. They oftentimes uh, they did uh, 
they were often violently rebellious. Uh, they oftentimes were paranoid. They, they, in many times, they had you know, absolutely paranoid fantasies about the threats that mm. that were uh, upon them. If you look at the in the American Revolution, everyone is familiar with the opening of the Declaration of Independence, but few people get to the passages in which George III is referred to as a tyrant who is trying mm. to enslave Americans, which is pretty extreme. <laughs> and I realized that the, that it it kind of occurred to me that maybe. Maybe the price of having a free society is having a bunch of people who are ornery, who are hmm. unwilling to take authority, who are unwilling to abide by the words of their betters. And hmm. that perhaps this was kind of a surprise to me. Perhaps yeah. this is a necessary ingredient in achieving free societies, as opposed to those people who believe that you write, a, you write this, this document called the Constitution and you, you append the Bill of Rights and everything kind of takes care of itself. I realized I came to the conclusion that's absolutely false. I, in my book, yeah. I mentioned the fact that Stalin wrote a really beautiful constitution for the Soviet yeah. Union, guaranteeing them just really much, much more stuff than was guaranteed to us. Hmm. Um, so I have very, I, I, I differ emphatically from the school of, let's say, the Straussians who tend to put a lot of, uh, a lot of importance to, to documents, uh, to you know, uh, sacred documents. Yeah. I, and I tend to find the, 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 the bedrock of freedom in societies in the individual uh, gut feelings of the of ordinary people. Um, this is this is great. I, I've tried, I've tried to explain your thesis because it's so elegant and so wonderful and so surprising. And the word that I always come back to, which which you just used, was ornery. So what we're what we're looking at, I mean, yes, the people hold high values. They want freedom. They want liberty. But also there's a certain amount, there's a certain element of people who are just like, you can't tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do, I, 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 and which, which I just find. And, and these are the people who wind up eventually fighting for liberty. These are the people to whom we are thankful for our liberties and our freedoms. Yes, yes. And it's, it can be very paradoxical because, I, for example, in the, in the English Revolution of 1688, known as the glorious revolution for some strange reason the you know people historians intellectual historians look back and they say oh this is john locke this is all that kind of stuff they they don't look at the fact that most people were galvanized by the by the by the rumor that james ii had the jesuits put a baby in the in a in a bed warmer and introduce it as his son you know this was this was this was a kind of you know paranoid myth that actually drove people to want to get rid of James II. You know, it wasn't a philosophic treatise, and this is—it's kind of embarrassing. You know, if you're if you're the kind of person like me who studied books and and read you know serious political philosophy most of my life, to to, to realize that the, the the real activating force in history is people's uh, what I what I call natural libertarians, not people who follow. Huh. The ideology of libertarianism, which I find to be incoherent, but people who simply say, oh, you're not going to be, you're not going to boss me around. Now, let me try to, I'll now connect it with the, with the current events. Huh. And, it, you know, the, the, the idea of a culture war is extremely common. You know, this is the theme of a culture war. But the way I see it, the culture war comes down to basically those people who feel that they are the natural betters and the ones who should be telling us how to live our lives, what not to do, what to do. And these people have basically, in our society, gained the upper hand via a media that 
that no one ever, you know, the people who wrote the, the Constitution, when they talked about freedom of press, everybody could, everyone had their own press. A small town would have three or four different presses, each representing a different, you know, political point of view. Today, we have this conglomeration, not only with, you know, uh, newspapers like the Washington Post, uh, mm. New York Times, you have the, you know, the mainstream media, you have the TV shows, you have, you have all this. And they're, they're basically, they, you, you, you find them reciting not only the same ideas, but the very same phrases and words. I remember mm. during the Trump Russian hoax, uh, the, the phrase the walls were closing in was repeated yeah, by right. literally the same the same phrase, you know. Yeah. And you realize that 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 these people and we'll just call them the liberal elite. I hate I, I hate labels like that. Hmm. But the people who are basically in charge of the distribution and manufacture of opinions definitely feel that they have not only the right to tell us what to think and indoctrinate us, but they have the duty to do it. Uh, the last piece I wrote. Uh, as a as a journalist for the American Enterprise Institute was was about the invincible sincerity of of the of the liberal elite the fact that they really think and they're absolutely convinced to, the, to the, the marrows of their bone that they are on the right side of history and those who are not ready to follow them you know with this hmm. this week's new new expansion of, of the right side of history that anyone who's not willing to jump on the bandwagon immediately is a troglodyte and they really these voices need to be censored uh, you know, right now you have you have Fox News, you have Tucker Carlson, and they are being you know they are being attacked, vilified, not not merely saying these are bad, but the idea that they really that these voices should not exist in our society. We should not be allowed to hear these people talk. And at this point in time, at this point, you know, we're moving very very close to the kind of Orwellian world that was, you know, imagined in, 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 in the great novel 1984. Hmm. Except if you remember, Winston Smith's job was to go back and correct uh, old newspapers that got things wrong. And, of course, that's no, no longer necessary because yeah. it, they just ignore it. It's, it's like the, you know, the media is not covering the, the trial of the, uh, of the, of the Clinton guy. Uh, it's it just it's unimaginable right. to me if you talk to people who are, you know, who are still liberal in the in the, the modern sense of the word, they oftentimes don't even know these things are going on. Well, one of the, th I mean, one of the things that we saw yesterday, really kind of a spectacular event, I, I think uh, underappreciated was, yeah, during the, you know, the, the trial of Michael Sussman, the Clinton lawyer, it appears that uh, Elon Musk had just heard about this a week ago. You know, his, his I don't know, we don't, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on with the Twitter sale, but the fact that, uh, Elon Musk finally caught wind of what was going on and he's tweeting about it. This manages to break through this bubble in, in ways that other people can't. I, I know that the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence tried to get this news to the American people. To ch the then chairman and ra then ranking member Devin Nunes tried for years to get this out and he did a terrific job. But when Elon Musk gets a hold of it, that really helps that really helps advance the information. So why does, uh, however we want to describe them, why does the liberal elite, the liberal establishment, the courtiers of the oligarchy, why do they feel entitled or rather responsible for, uh, for these standards that we, must all, that we must all abide by? What is this about? What part of the culture war do, does this play? Well, there, 
the first way of approaching this is to ask them, you know, why why they feel this. And this is where you encounter what I call the invincible, their invincible sincerity. But this this begs the question of why are these the issues on which they choose to be uh, so emphatically sincere and, and so determined to make sure that their their voice alone is heard. And this goes back to, this is a, a theory that I, I've developed since writing the last book, which was 12 years ago. Uh, and it's more of a sociological phenomenon, which I, I, you and I have talked about before. The idea that in America, it's very important to be considered intelligent. You don't mm. necessarily want to be considered intellectual, but nobody wants to be considered a fool, an old fart, you know, I'm very sensitive mm. to that, I'm 73. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You're nothing of the sort. We want to stay up to date. We don't want to get behind the times and be called on the wrong side of history, God forbid. And what's happened is as progressivism has moved through through things that, you know, a lot of things which I regarded and fought for and thought were very admirable, like, you know, bring civil rights uh, you know, acceptance of, of homosexuality, issues like that, feminism, you know, all of which I, I totally support. And the odd thing is that at this point in time, most, most, you know, most of those ornery Americans have come to support too. Hmm. This means that if you're going to be considered an you know, advanced thinker, if you're going to be a member of the elite, you have to find new territory right. that is still not accepted by the ordinary person. So you're, you're increasingly moving into more radical and by the point of view, the, from the point of view of ordinary people, kind of a crazy position, as was the the, the hearing on abortion, where the one the mm. woman was saying that you know was asked, "Can men get abortions?" And yeah, you know, oh, right. she said yes. And at this point, <laughs> if, you, right. if you talk to somebody who who believes that the Earth is flat, yeah. you know, you know what they what they mean when they say the Earth. You know what they mean when they say flat, and you can say, yeah. "Well, I don't think you're right." But when somebody says a man can have an abortion, are they using the word man in the same way that we are using? Are we traditionally using the word man or are they are they changing the meaning of pregnant? So we're, we're, we're dealing here with people with with ideas that that sometimes border on just nonsense, you know, where you really can't. It's, it's almost like it's almost like it has no no meaning except the meaning of showing the person who espouses these ideas as being a avant-garde thinking or being, you know, right. on the right side of history. It's a, right, right. They're also politically, um, they're politically safe in that way. So especially when, when you have someone testifying on, on Capitol Hill to say, oh, yes, certainly men can get pregnant. And everyone, the, 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 the progressive movement breathes easily. Ah, she passed the test. She's with us. She, well, yes, she, yeah, yeah, she this, understands this, this, what the fight yeah, is. Yeah, I think well, this is an important aspect of being a, a member of any cult or any kind of, uh, you know, any, or any re- religious organization. You want to have a, a set of ideas that are held sacred and everyone must subscribe to them, un, you know, unthinkingly. And I think that's what we're seeing today. And it's, but, but the, the interesting th- thing to me is that at what point, Will this will the craziness just become so obvious that people will say, "Hey, we can't go there"? Because one of the one of the the, the, the real trump card of these people is the idea that you're taught in college, essentially. If, and I went to college a long time ago, but in college, you know, I was told that uh, you know, in college, you're 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 told to think for yourself, which means functionally, don't think like your parents, think like us professors. Okay, hmm. and right, what ha- what happens is that 
these people are so concerned about about looking stupid, that is, by 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 being condemned as troglodytes, being condemned as backwards, that they are willing to grasp on any new uh, thing, any new idea or that promises to be an advanced intellectual position, showing that they are, you know, intellectuals or they're intelligent. What is it that they're scared of? Why don't they want to sound like their parents? Why don't they want to sound like their, uh, why don't they want to sound like the, the family's strange reviled uncle or the family's backwards aunt? What is that? Because we're, well, you just answered that question, but you just answered the question, the family's backward aunt. It's, it's because we, we, you know, Americans like to be up to date. I mean, this is, this is a, this is a long tradition that, you know, that everybody has in America. We like to be up to date. We don't like to be old fogies. And I think there's the pressure to do that. There's also the fact that, that, you know, as college education has spread, the idea that, you know, more and more people are going to college, more and more people are going to you know, junior college and, and stuff like that. It becomes easier to, to put yourself to self-identify with that educated class, not by becoming educated yourself, but by repeating the stibulus, the, the slogans that these educated people uh, have. So you, you, you have this kind of a dumbing down of, of what is considered, you know, intellectually, what is considered intellectually correct to a level that, you know, becomes almost a matter of slogans. I mean, to what, to what extent are we looking at that? At intra, is it intra-class, intra-class snobbery, or, to, yeah, or, or, or what role does snobbery, I mean, yeah, you've I'll, spoken I'll, before I'll, about it, so it's partly about intra-racial yeah, is, uh, struggles. Yeah, because we're dealing with this, the, you know, the, 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 the coming back to life of white supremacy and as, mm-hmm. a, as a slogan. I mean, I lived in the South during, uh, in the 1950s. And, you know, I know what I know what racial bigotry was. I know what, you know, white white supremacy was. And the idea this is somehow is obvious. There's still fringe, you know, crazies like, you know, the horrible situation and the massacre in in Buffalo. But the idea this is this this is a real issue uh, motivating, you know, the the vast, vast swaths of Americans is just simply wrong. Um, And it's it's quite unbelievably wrong. But I think among I think white people, there's the, the old game among white people of looking down mm-hmm. at other white people, and this has been going ah. on for some period of time. Uh, I was ra- I was raised by a mother, a wonderful mother, but she would always, you know, she would always talk about white trash and how important it was not to behave like white trash. Mm-hmm. And this is a concept that I think you know most people are you know kind of familiar with. And I, I think today that so many of the, the white liberals, and here I'm just dealing with you know the, the, the white liberals, they they really they really look down upon, and they want to to distinguish themselves from the people that that uh, have the old-fashioned ideas. You know, one of the things I, I've I've always I always do with my my liberal friends is I'll ask them a simple question: Have they ever watched Fox hmm. for anything? And if they, they look at me with horror, like, how could, how could you possibly think we could ever watch Fox? Yeah. And I, I, you know, if I were to say, have you, would, you, would you read an article in Pravda, they would have no problem with that. You know, it's, it's, but, but here, clearly, what they're, what they're doing is they're wanting to say, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not the kind of person that, that, that follows Fox or listens to Tucker Carlson. They want to, yeah. they're wanting to show that they're, they belong in this, in this class 
of the, what Thomas Sowell called the anointed, that the people who hmm. have the right opinions on the right thing at the right time. And the right time is very important because, you know, what what I thought was liberal, you know, 1980, uh, I was I consider myself a liberal in 1980. And but yeah. the stuff today is, you know, it's it's way out there. I mean, I was always supportive of the idea of, you know, accepting gay gay men mm-hmm. as part of you know, normal society. Mm-hmm. And but but but, you know, moving into the, you know, the transgender, the transgender stuff, we're moving mm-hmm. into some a really strange territory. And here again, you know, when, when you look at a situation where the question arises whether a a person, a boy who identifies as a girl can shower in a girl's girl's locker room hmm. and people are saying, well, you know, you're bigoted if you don't accept that. I mean, <laughs> how did we, how did we reach this point to say you're bigoted because you're you don't want your daughter showering with a guy? You know, it's just that's that's really strange. Is, is this I mean, I mean, well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, if, you know, uh if if we're talking, if the title of your your great 2010 book, if we're talking about the next American Civil War, what is it about? Is it fundamentally a cultural conflict? Then, is it fundamentally yeah. an intra-white, uh, an intra-white yeah, I, I think, conflict? I think it's and this very we... much an intra-white thing, and I think that 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 anyone who's sincerely interested in the welfare of you know Hispanics or, or blacks or other people in our society. The idea that you know that slowing down policing of, of bad neighborhoods is is helping mm. is helping right. these people is just nonsense. And and so much of the stuff you're hearing is just it is counterproductive to the interests of these people. And I think the main thing again is that the white liberals are just kind of enjoying the idea of of looking down on the on the, uh, the their their troglodyte you know less educated mm. you know, fellow Americans. How far is it going to? I mean, I'm not asking if if we're if we're going to start shooting at each other soon, but how? Yeah, how far does it go before people? Well, uh, I mean, I, I think we both probably agree that a lot of the a lot of the blame here falls with with white liberals, white progressives who are pushing it very hard. So, how far does it go before That's, it gets yeah, before it gets much worse? You know, William Blake in his Proverbs of, of Hell has the, the great phrase, if a fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. And, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that kind of thing will happen, but so far I don't see it. And, you know, I have to admit that, you know, the title of my last uh, next of American Civil War was, was rather inflammatory and perhaps deliberately so. But I think we're reaching a point where the, you know, what, what bothers me is, you know, I, I one of the things I looked into a great deal was, you know, how the civil, how the first civil war began. Hmm. And the first civil war obviously was, you know, slavery was at the heart of, of the, of the, of the controversy, but it was more than that. It became like a real cultural clash where you had a group of people who were prepared, for example, to regard John Brown as a martyr, as Hmm. a, as a Jesus Christ figure. And you had other people who were just, you know, like Jefferson Davis would not accept the idea that you couldn't take a black person, that, that the, the rep- Republicans wouldn't allow you to take your black slaves to Oregon. You know, these are all, these are all kind of peripheral issues, and, but they developed into this, uh, this horrible, horrible tragedy that's known as the first, uh, first civil war. Can we talk but about John? Oh, oh I was yes. going to ask him. I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. If you, if you please finish, but I, I was going to say, I, I, I would, I'd love to talk about John Brown for, for a couple of minutes. Sure. I mean, this seems to be, uh, 
I, I, I remember one, one time you and I were speaking, and, and I believe we agreed that this is that what we're watching unfold here. It's not about communism or socialism or Maoism or anything like that. That these are things that have been in American society for many, many years. And I, I look at John Brown as a function of as a function of this. John Brown is sort of a um, as one of the uh, exemplar of 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 a, of a certain type of American extremism uh, and, and and intolerance and and maybe yeah, and, who, we, and who was who was also lionized by people like Emerson right. and Thoreau and right. church bells rang in, in throughout Massachusetts when he the day he was hanged right uh, but yeah you and I one of the things that we've talked about is I, I get very frustrated at the idea of trying to you know bring Marx Karl Marx into this hmm. into these issues. I, I think he's absolutely irrelevant to what's going on. Uh, in fact, if if I were to if I were to use Marx, I would use Marx to say, well, isn't it interesting that all these corporations, these big, huge corporations, are woke, and by virtue of being woke, nobody's really concerned about how they make their money or what they do with their money or anything like that. So, I think a, a Marxist could make a very valid analysis of what's going on in terms of of the of the of the oligarchs using woke ideology as a smokescreen for what they're really doing for the power they're, they're they're continuing to absorb and they can say oh look at us we're woke you know we're right. <laughs> don't worry about you know the fact that you know what's happening in china to you know the, the muslims uh um, right. you know watch disney we're, we're having gay characters in disney cartoons i mean I, right. I i i have a feeling there's something going on there but getting back to, to the John Brown thing is that no. you know, people overlooked that America's had a long tradition of, of flirting with you know fanaticism, uh, mm. flirting with socialism. Edward Bellamy's book, Looking uh, Looking Forward, was the what, one of the three great bestsellers of the latter part of the 19th century. And it's about come, looking mm. back from some, a time like us to, to this wonderful socialist paradise that's been erected in the United States. And you you have that you know intrinsic in in the, in the American tradition are these these ideas of 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 of, of utopian visions that uh, that I, I think we're we're seeing today. Uh, Fascinating. Where does it come from? Does it come from the fact of America? I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the United States is a, a country founded in many ways by people who were. I mean, talking about, you know, founding the new city on the hill, the new Jerusalem. Is it a yeah. function of that, that this is as old as the country itself, the, the notion yeah, of no, utopia? There, 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 there's no question about that. It's that, oh. you know, the utopian impulse has always been very, very strong in our society. Hmm. And utopia, in my, one of the things I, I, I did in my last book, I was hoping it would catch on, but it didn't, is I define utopia as essentially a society in which intellectuals govern and tell other people how to live their lives. Yeah. And if you look back, if you look back at Plato's Republic, or you look right. at Thomas More's Utopia, yeah. in fact, all you know, historically, all utopias have, or Walden, you know, uh, Walden II Skinner, all right. utopias are about people that the experts who are better to control our life than than we are. And you, this this comes up in, in things like uh, Cass uh, Sunshine's book, uh, Sunshine's book, uh, Nudge. You know, the idea that you know, we can nudge people that don't know what the right choices are to make the choices that we know would be right for them if they were intelligent as we are. <laughs> I mean, it sounds very convincing. You know, <laughs> no, like, no, like, no this, is, this is a great, imagine a great definition of utopia. Right. This imagine is fantastic. Using that, 
imagine using that on your child saying, you know, you would, you would, you would not eat this ice cream. You would eat these broccolis if you were just as intelligent as I am. You know, that wouldn't work very well. <laughs> right. Right. And it's amazing these people think it's going to work, uh, you know, in, in our lifetime. It's, it's just it's just not. It's just, I think that, you know, it, it's very interesting that uh, Margaret Atwood, who in the famous Handmaiden's Tale. Yes. She actually, I, I read her one time and she was asking, hmm. you know, did she think this is not her recent statement, but this is a while back. Did she think that America could actually succumb to any kind of, you know, dystopian nightmare and she said no yeah. americans are too ordinary and she used that word ordinary huh. uh, which i thought was interesting i don't think she'd read my book but uh yeah. but it was interesting she did use that do you agree with her now or what what do you think or have americans succumb to or are we beginning to succumb to a dystopian nightmare not necessarily like the one um uh sketched in in um in madam atwood's book but yeah, but I mean, are, are, no, no, are we, we on the precipice? I, I, think, I think the idea of, uh, you know, Americans for all, we, we were made fun of in the 19th century for being a, a society that, that just put women on the pedestal. I mean, Schopenhauer was terrible about dealing with us about that. Um, what, did they, but, what, what, what did he say? What? Well, Schopenhauer was a terrible misogynist, and he just thought we were just romantic cretins for, you know, for, for, for thinking of women as, you know, being... But you know, we were the first. First, we, we were you know, gave women the vote, and women have you know, immense power in our society today. And the idea that they're going to be somehow, you know, turned into handmaidens is a little silly. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But but here again, it's one of the, one of the most to me one of the things that really speaks to me about how the liberal elite thinks is when they make comments about their enemy, about the ordinary Americans. And they will, you know, they'll say, oh, the, you know, these, these these terrible Christians want to set up a theocratic state. And they have these 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 really these bizarre caricatures of what ordinary Americans you know, believe and think. And they they're they're able to get away with having such characters because they don't know any ordinary Americans. Um, their idea is what their idea is that the Americans they don't know and whatever ever we want to describe it, flyover country and, and the and the red areas, the red states, want to set up a theocratic state and want to bring back slavery or want to, you know, right. any, any number of those things you, you hear that you, you wonder, can, how can people possibly believe such stuff? Right. You know, um, the dystopian state that I'm describing would be more, I think, the idea that what you and I would perceive of as dystopian, for instance, the idea that um, the present the current administration is, is clearly paving the way for a green energy future. The problem is once we get on the other side of ten dollars uh, for a gallon of oil, there's not enough renewable energy to make that happen. So I guess what I'm talking about a dystopian future is, is it possible that people who are governing our country at this point are capable of running us into an actual dystopian uh, reality? Well, here's a nice title for a book, The Accidental Dysto Dystopia. <laughs> is it, you know, <laughs> traditionally this dystopias are the, the, yeah. dystopias are the product of, you know, the, these, you know, like the big brother type type people. That you know are carefully you know, but you can have a dystopia brought about by by incompetence. And I think mm -hmm. if the, if if any administration, 
could could bring about dystopia by incompetence. I think it's the Biden administration. I mean, it's it's we're learning what it's like to not have a not have a head of government. You know, where right. it's it's a very strange situation here. It's, Is that but, what you, you know, think? Do you think it's incompetence, or do you or do you think that some that that uh, that there are actually that there are that it's purposeful at times, or a, or a combination of the two? Well, I think it's. I think they would like to be purposeful, but I'm not sure they're confident enough to do it. I mean, I, I really. I, I, no, no, fair enough. That's that's nicely. Put. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I it's. I mean, I, I watched the clip of 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 John Kennedy, who I love, mm. the senator John Kennedy, uh, asking, mm. you know, who appointed uh, Yankowitz to become the 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 disinformation czar. You know, uh, right. and it's. <laughs> uh, and here again, I mean, you know, I. I you, I have this vision of people sitting around the table saying, you know, who should we choose to be the spokesman for our disinformation board? And somebody yeah. raised their hand saying, you know, Yankowitz. It's everyone. So, oh, yes, yes. I mean, what, <laughs> what kind of world is that? I mean, a comic novelist would not be able to envision such a thing. All right. You know? All right. Um, well, look, so, so where are we in... You know, in, in many ways, you, you predicted the rise of, of, of Donald Trump. And, I, you know... Where are we now? And second of all, what does populism mean? I've, I've, I've been trying to figure out exactly what populism means and, in a country like ours, insofar as populists are said to represent the, 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 the will of the people. I mean, isn't the word populism giving credit to the elite in that sense? And like, well, yeah, how else is a democracy supposed to go uh, aside from representing, <laughs> representing public opinion? Or, 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 or does it mean something well, else? And, well, here again, I mean, this is populism is, is a word that can that can that pops up in in American history, for example, in the 19th century, where populism was identified with the farmers, the people who supported William Jennings Bryan. Uh, and at that point in time, the populists wanted, you know, easy money. They wanted, you know, to add silver to gold and stuff like that. Uh, so, but that doesn't apply here at all. This, mm. this is a very different form of populism. And the, the basic thing, we go back to the old Greek distinction of demos, where, mm. you know, democracy, the word democracy, demos in the Greek, it's, does, does not mean the people the way mm. we think it means. It meant those people, that is, those working, those dirty working class people who had to work for a living, not us gentlemen who don't have to work right. for a living and, and have, have always ruled things. And through a, a a number of historical flukes, for example, the fact that Athens had to have a navy, they were forced to let working class people who were willing to man their boats have a voice in how the society was 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 run. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of, 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 of democracy essentially originated with through a populist movement by which the, the people who were lower down the social economic scale wanted a voice in society. And I think you can see the same thing here. It's, it is the, you know, the, the Trump supporters are the people who work with their hands. Hmm. Uh, and and in one of one of the ideas I developed in my first book, Civilization's Enemy, was the, the division between people who, who, ex, who basically make a living by manipulating symbols, that is either numbers or words, oh. like I'm a, I'm a writer, you're a writer. Right. We manipulate symbols, okay? Uh, an accountant manipulates, you know, numbers. Uh, mm. The technical people manipulate code, and then there are people who actually deal with real things. That is, who take hammers and and build houses, mm. uh, who take glass and put them in windows, who make, you know, th that kind of thing. And I believe that there's that 
there, there tends to be each group tends to have a certain mindset that is derivative from the, how they make the living and, and how they what their mind is preoccupied with. And for the for the, the, the people who manipulate symbols, words, words alone become very important. So calling things by the right name becomes a matter of life and death, like certain words. Uh, for example, the word retarded is, is considered absolutely, you know, it's a no-no now, even though yeah. it was originally introduced as a polite way of referring to groups of people that were referred yeah. to much, much, much more cruelly in the yeah. past. Whereas, whereas people who, who work with their hands, you know, the blue-collar workers, they're, for them, reality has a hardness to it. I, I remember when I wrote one of, I, I've actually written a couple of novels, too. Hmm. And I remember in one of my novels, I have a, a, the character is redoing his house. And just a couple of pages, I just write down the house is redone. It's all beautiful now. And that's different from actually taking a house and hmm. redoing yeah. it, you know, right. getting all the paint out and all that kind of stuff. And the problem is that, that right now, the, the, the symbol manipulators are the ones who are basically controlling the game. And this is true even in, in conservative hmm. circles. This is why I, I, I mentioned the people like the Claremont people who, who just who, – who all they talk about are, are documents and like uh, Ant, the, that Andrew right. guy says, what we need to do is go back and read Machiavelli. I mean, Machiavelli's fine, but I just don't – I'm just not sure how relevant – uh, Machiavelli or Marx are uh, to, 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 the, to the current situation. And I think that there's a trap that all intellectuals get into by s- completely by virtue of being intellectual. They tend to distort reality. They tend to see it in forms of ideas as opposed to real things. Fascinating. Okay. So let's, this is, this is great because, um, you know, I, I mean, I think we all have, you know, groups of friends that we talk about and, and uh, that we talk with different things about. And, it's, and, and I found it's people are getting increasingly despondent talking about how things are going. But again, if you're in front of a, if you're in front of a computer, if you're in front of a television set, even if you're listening to the radio. Right. And it's easy to be filled with news and, 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 and thus filled at this point with despair. Right. So if your understanding of the world is different. If your understanding of America is different, what does America look like right now? Is America not on the precipice of a civil war? Is America just going through a more or less bad time that it's endured in the past? And there's there are there are no issues here that cannot be resolved through elections, through strengthening one's communities, through tithing, through yeah, what 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 are we looking at if you see this country, if you see reality differently? Well, yes, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I and, find and it in again, different I mean, places. It's it's different in different places. You know, I was I was living in Washington D.C. for about a decade and a half, and certainly after you know we moved out after uh, Congress started putting barbed wire, uh, you know, started fencing themselves in with barbed wire and called in the National Guard. And having reported from the Middle East, I know what that looks like. When there are people right. with guns who are in front of your parliament building, that's a, if you can get out, you should. But now I live in a different place. You and I are, are not quite neighbors, but we live in neighboring states. And so things look very different from here. And I, and I think it's important for the people, as you talk about the uh, symbolic workers, symbolic renderers, to understand how, how events right now may look differently. Because a lot of people, it seems, are, are rushing it, maybe not rushing into, but feel 
uh, beset by panic. So yeah, again, so well, yeah, I, 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 I have, have, I have, 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 I have an, uh, some insight into hmm. my my roommate of many many years. Hmm. Uh, he 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 installs window tint at, at for high end cars, and where he works. And there, it's it's a place where people bring their very expensive cars and and they have stereos put in, and it's the people that that work in the in the the same shop with him, uh, are are full of 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 really wacko conspiracy theories, uh, and they see I mean a lot of them feel like there's no point in voting because they feel like if if they vote it's just the election's going to get stolen, yeah. and in in terms of in terms of a real civic breakdown. What I fear and what I've always feared is, is, is elections, the presidential huh. election. And we saw it, you know, in 2016 with the Russian, mm-hmm. you know, illusion yeah. conspiracy. Uh, I think it's wrong to call it a hoax because it was much, much more dangerous. Than I, that. I, I, I agree. I have refrained. I have tried to refrain from calling it a hoax because, yes, I think it was, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it, was, it was poison for the American yeah, public. It's, it's like it's calling the blood libel. Calling the right. blood libel a hoax, it's not. I mean, right. It's, it's, right. And, and then we have, you know, the election of 2000, which you have, you know, uh, you know, 70 million people think it was stolen. And hmm. I'm not making any judgments on that. But what I fear is that in the next presidential election, you know, if it is Trump and it's Biden again, you know, I will there be a will there be an outcome that's accepted? And if if not, then that's where the real problems would. would that's where things would really get rough and violent is if we go mm-hmm. into a situation where two people are claiming to have won the presidency, you know, and it's, uh, yeah. Uh, what are other dangers? Just, that, that, yeah, that, that would be, that would be the, the real danger. Yeah. Um, but, but here again, I mean, the, the problem is, is that like, it's like during the, uh, the summer of, of all the riots and stuff like that, mm-hmm. if you have a media, that's looking at this stuff and saying, oh, this is mainly peaceful protest. This is, you know, this is fine. Then, you know, it's what, what happens then? I mean, if the, if the media is going to continue to simply say, uh, for example, like with the, you know, the, 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 the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you mm-hmm. know, if, if here again, I'm not making any judgment on it. I'm simply no. trying to look at it as a political, uh, as, as just analyzing as a, as a bystander. Mm-hmm. You know, if things, you know, they're talking about, you know, assaults on the Supreme Court building and something right. like that. If that happens, then, you know, we're moving into different territory. And the question will be, right. at what point will the press, will the liberal press say, wait, this, this has gone far enough that this is, mm-hmm. this is, this is too much. It's, for example, like the picketing of the conservative judges, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get them to change their vote. This is against federal law. The president of the United right. States seems to think it's no problem. The, the new spokesperson seems mm-hmm. to think it's no problem. Uh, but at, at what point will will you know? We, it's a well-known fact that if the right acts up, you know, then you have you, you it's, it's a natural a natural emergency right. and it needs to be examined over and over again. But the left can, seems to be able to get away with you know, with virtual murder. And the question you, is how far how far will that go? Well, do you? I mean, I I myself don't see any breaking point for them. I don't think there's anything that that can happen that they will say, well, wait a minute, this is out of control. I mean, we saw what happened, uh, was it 2000, the, the, the shooting of, uh, you know, of, of Congressman Steve Scalise. Right. I can't remember that was 2000, I think it was 2017. Um, you know, I, I mean, and there, I mean, even the FBI responded, Andrew McCabe, who was then 
uh, acting director of the FBI. And McCabe said, yeah, no, this is not an act of terrorism. And of course, the press just basically shrugged it off. And now we see reports when we know it's not true, but we see how the right is responsible for all of the political terror in this country, right wing supremacy. So I, I, I don't see the press coming to that coming to that point where they say, whoa, wait a minute, this is dangerous. Do, do you do you think there is anything that can pull them back as yeah, no, here again, I mean, it's, I would have to fall back on William Blake uh, for any hope there. But no, I, I don't I don't see it. And, and that's that's here again. It's very troublesome. It's it's yeah. you know, to me that the greatest threat has always been the fact that we have allowed <clears throat> through through the development of technology. You know, we've allowed the, the 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 creation of these huge and incredibly powerful media that can influence how people think, you know, and tell them basically what to think. And we're having a situation where they're all playing, with some exceptions, from the same playbook. Right. And it's it's certainly much more convincing than if you live in a in a formally totalitarian co- country where there's mm-hmm. one press, one is you know, like Pravda. Right. If if but you know if Stalin had just come up with the you know this brain this brilliant idea of having twelve different Pravdas and calling yeah. them by right. different names. You know, maybe things would have worked better for him. You know, uh, but but, it's, but but you're right. It's that the, the the and here again, that's the the caricature of the of their enemies that that the left has uh, certainly promotes the, the the unwillingness to 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 wake up and say maybe we've gone too far. Uh, what yeah, would I, you? I have, very, I have a very sad, you know, very tragic view of of the future of the United States, and I'm, I'm really? I really regret that because I, I love this country. I said, yeah, I, I'm going with the Lincoln's phrase, phrase we're the last, you know, the last best mm. hope. And I've always felt that. And here again, it's like, you know. Wait, we, you've always felt that we were the last best hope? Or you've, you've yeah, always the, had a the, tragic view of. Well, I've, oh, both. One of the sadder th- conclusions I came to in, in Suicide of Reason is what I call liberal exceptionalism. The idea that maybe liberalism was a period that was, that, that developed simply because there was a new world in which people could move in and have a fresh start, in which there was, as de, as de Tocqueville pointed out, there was no feudal institutions to overthrow like there was in the French Revolution. So people came to America, and they were basically you know, all Calvinists to begin with, and the Calvinists believe in, in, in having you know, congregations you know, running things. You, know, you have elders, but you, know, you, don't have a, you don't have a church hierarchy. And America... Uh, like like New Zealand and Australia were were countries that were like uh, that were, were the you know the, the people who came to the country were able to create their their own societies from scratch, and it may be that once once societies get old and get stratified and get you know hierarchical like we've become, mm-hmm. that that liberalism simply dies out. It it just it simply it fades away because the the, the natural libertarians who are essential to keep it going. The natural libertarians who are drawn to the virgin soul, who are drawn to the hmm. the frontiers, that they simply that they just get, they give up, they become uh, they become uh, apolitical, they become cynical, they become hmm. uh, just the, a sense of hopelessness. You know why? Why it's like the, the guys that I'm talking about at the shop who say, you know, what, what's the point of voting? Hmm. Uh, well, I'll say, I'll say. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Please, please, you finish, and, and then I'll and then I'll make my counterpoint. No, make your counterpoint now. So. Well, look, I, I mean, I, I, I think that um, I, 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 I'm extru- I'm very hopeful because I do believe that we are going through we're going through a tough time, 
uh, we're going through a very hard time and there's there's no reason to uh, to undersell that. But I, th- I think that it's um, I think that it's compelling people to draw on resources they didn't know they had. I think that all sorts of things, I think that, co- I mean, look, the, ex- the, the example that everyone gives is how COVID forced parents to look at what their children were learning at school. And I, I think that's, you know, I, I think that's an important aspect, but I think other things, I think other things are going on too. I think that people are looking at, I mean, what, what, what have been, sh- what have been shut down on people, their communities, their, their churches, their children's schools. I mean, so so I like to think that Americans will return to their communities. They love their communities and will strengthen their communities. That this is the that this is the real core of what American life is and that in some ways we will not to, not to eschew elections, not to avoid them, but to say, you know what? What really makes this country strong and powerful is us our families, our communities. We must feed the, 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 the soul and spirit of our families, whether that's coaching uh, Little League, whether that's teaching uh, Bible, whether that's tutoring kids and, and something, teaching someone how to, how to drive, how to shoot, whatever, I don't know. But it just seems that, that it's an opportunity for people to go back and to realize what our real strengths are. There is no redemption in politics, never mind national politics. And then I see different people and, and weirdly, I'm uh, inspired at times even by Twitter, which I think we all, we can all say it's a cesspool, but nonetheless, you see some of the things that people say on there, things that people believe, the things that people write on there, I'm like, wow, that is just great. That is just awesome. So I, I think there is a large number of people in this country, I'm not saying right now, or you know, who, uh, who, who are going to start firing at their neighbors, but who love this country and who are willing to go very, very far, not only to, you know, protect what we've had, but to, to advance our country. So that's, that's my long riff on, on, on my optimism. And this is not to say I, I do not recognize the dangers that we face and, and how ugly things are. So that's my counterpoint. Well, I think I think your counterpoint comes from a, a, a from the fact that you probably get out more than I do. That you <laughs> <laughs> that you probably well, spend not, a lot I'm more not, time. I'm, with. Not, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that, but that's very nice. Well, but but you're you're a much more conscientious observer of what's going on, you know. And and you, I don't know what anyone says on Twitter. But I think you're. you're, you're yeah, I'm, that's I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, that's I'm, not get, that's not getting out. That's a symptom of not getting out. <laughs> so, uh. Well, I'm I'm going to say that I certainly hope you're correct. I certainly hope you're mm-hmm. correct. I, I would I would like to think that. And and there is that you know history does have a pendulum when it goes, things. My father used to say it goes. We can go too far, and we always kind of swing back the other way. And he was a fairly wise man. I believe I believe in the course of the dialectic that that's how history moves. History does not move in a straight line. Different things happen, and you think it's tending and w- trending in one direction, and as it turns out, it's not. Right? The, I, old, I mean, dialectical, I, I, the, the old dialectical reversal. Yeah, it, you know, it, it may you know. There may be a Satori moment where people, the people in the press say, you know, we've we've been taking some really pretty ridiculous and idiotic, idiotic 
positions. Maybe yeah. we should straighten up, you know, because at some point in time, it, some of this, this new stuff is, is awfully embarrassing just from an intellectual point of view. I mean, really. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think they're going to do it on their own. Right. I, I think that's unlikely. I think it's unlikely okay. that whatever's going on with Biden will happen on its own. But again, as I said, I think one of the most remarkable things that happened this week and, and you know, maybe I'm overstating the case, but the fact that Elon Musk, someone read him in or he just found it on Twitter himself. But he found out about Russiagate and he found out about the Sussman trial. And I, I wrote a book about Russiagate, but I guarantee and, and then my friend Amanda Milius made a movie about that book. But I guarantee 100% that whatever Elon Musk puts in 280 characters is going to get a lot more attention than whatever than whatever we're writing about it. And so, like that's that might be a big deal. That might be something that's that makes people say, like, well, wait a minute, what else are these people lying about? Like, I I started to think that the whole vaccine stuff and the whole COVID thing was rigged. But now you're telling me that the that, that the COVID thing was rigged and they shut down everything for no reason. And this whole thing about Russia was garbage and, and the whole the whole impeachment of Trump on Ukraine was garbage, too. Well, I, I sure didn't know that. So that again, I, I think that these things are possible. I think there are different ways that 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 people, you know, that people find out different things they didn't know before. And I think that's how things change. Well, I, th- I, I think Musk represents, like Trump, both of them are, are, are these odd figures that history has kind of thrown up, that just mm. suddenly they're there. Yeah. I mean, Trump had been around before, and I, I'd never taken Trump seriously. And mm. I, I suddenly I began watching, I, I started watching his debates a little late. Mm. But, I, but the first time I saw him speak to one of his crowds, I was absolutely, I was thunderstruck by how well mm. he communicated and you could tell this was this, this was a crowd yeah. that literally was you know they were they were totally with him, mm-hmm. and I, I I suddenly realized that we're we're dealing here with a, a totally unprecedented phenomenon, which I right which I did not know when I wrote my the next civil huh. war. I'm not that prescient. I I did not see Donald Trump as emerging as this as populist hero, which he has. But Elon Musk is coming forth as mm-hmm. a person, equally kind of unlikely character who right. may have a real impact on on how these things develop. And one of right. Another thing, it's not merely that Elon Musk has the platform that he has by virtue of being who he is, but he is now he's now replaced Tucker Carlson as enemy number one yeah. of the liberal establishment. And of course, yeah. they don't seem to realize that the more you talk about somebody, it's Oscar Wilde's famous remark: "The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about." Yeah, they're, they're amplifying right. their message. Yeah. Do you know what Elon Musk just said? I mean, that that's the, the yeah, kind right. of a, oh sure. Like, when the New York Times magazine, when the New York Times magazine decides to put out a hit on you, then everyone was like, "Oh, so they're really scared of Tucker Carlson because they keep doing it. They're scared <laughs> of Michael Flynn. They're scared of this person. They're scared of Elon well, Musk. Right? It's well, I mean, they're, I, uh, they're, they're very transparent. Yeah, one of the things I've said about Tucker Carlson is that you know. I'm not going to hope I'm not offending anybody, but you take someone like Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity was, has always been a fairly boring person. He is like a good conservative and all that kind of stuff. But up since the time of Voltaire, the left has always had the great weapon of ridicule and mockery. Okay. And conservatives were really slow to catch on to the power of mockery and the ridicule. And Tucker Carlson knows the power of ridicule and mockery. Okay. 
Yeah. And the thing that they really can't stand is when he comes at them and laughs at them and ridicules <laughs> yeah. them. And oh, here, right. this, is, this is where you're I think right. the dialectical reversal where people will simply say, oh, my God, we really are as silly as he just, as, he's, as, yeah. as Tucker Carlson is saying we are. It's that that, that might be where the – because intellectuals – I mean, every, every true intellectual has this idea of uh, there's a standard we have to maintain. You know, we can't right. go – <laughs> We can't. Well, 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 of course, we can't really, accept we can't, too much ridiculous stuff and, and right, keep our standing well, as individuals. Right, and, and look, it might, it might, if if we appear, the problem is we appear ridiculous, right? Our, you know, with the, the things we say are patently ridiculous, seen from a certain perspective. But but when they make us look ridiculous, that's really bad. That we can't abide. Exactly, and it's it's interesting. You had, I think, the New York Magazine, not known for its uh, conservative attitudes attacking you know, uh, Yankowitz and the whole disformation thing and saying it was right. a blessing that got pulled. Right. So you're, you're seeing a lot of these people, you know, thinking, you know, maybe we, maybe we're looking a bit like the fools that we want other people that we want right. our enemies to look like. So maybe there's I, a, you know, there are rays of hope. And let's hope, right. let's hope for I, some rays of hope. I, I realized there I wasn't quoting an intellectual, but I was quoting Jack Waltz from the Godfather when he said, a man in my position cannot afford to be made to look ridiculous. I realize, oh. <laughs> I well, look, so you had you had not in the next American Civil War, you had not um, you had not anticipated, of course, Donald Trump. What did you anticipate? What did you think when you were talking about the populist revolt? What 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 did you think was going to happen? And what do you think is going to happen now? Because we're going to we're going to we're going to um, end in, in a couple of minutes. So, yeah, I just wanted to. Wanted to know what you anticipated then and what you anticipate now. Well, I I, I didn't see the, the the closest I came to a leader was was poor Sarah Palin, who was not exactly mm. you know I didn't think that, and I I didn't think the Tea Party movement had the had the <clears throat> had the the, the demographic demographic uh, feel to it. Mm. I, I thought it was it was more symptomatic of something, and I I just felt that it was like a I felt a almost a mystical feeling this tsunami was coming. And I, but I didn't know what form it would take. I just knew it was going to be a very, very powerful force that would really just turn everything upside down. Uh, why? Why? And, what was it? What What had you seen in the country that you know that that told you something like that was coming? Well, here again, it was you know the, the a lot of the people I knew that you know like working class people that I talked to, mm-hmm. uh, and just and part of it was like looking looking at history and looking at at what happens when elites are severed culturally from the groups that they normally, uh, you know, tend to, mm. you know, it's, for example, like in the, the, the British upper class in the 19th century certainly had no, they were absolutely confident that they were, you know, the superior, the, the betters, but they had the same cultural values of the people that, you know, that they regarded as their inferiors. Mm. Uh, today that's been totally i mean it's the the the, the, the break between the, the elite culture and the ordinary the culture of ordinary people has been co- total and complete mm. uh, and that's where i think the danger comes in that's where you know the mm. and, and also when the elite is incompetent when the elites manage yes. everything fine the people don't really have a problem with that so the two things are an incompetent elite and the one that pushes too far and right. one that has severed its cultural values will lead to some kind of explosion. I might have called it, you know, the next American revolution for that, for that matter, mm. that something would happen uh, that would, that would just turn everything upside down, which is kind of what Trump did. Right. And I regarded it, Trump. I, I voted for Trump. I voted for Trump twice. He's the first yeah. Republican I ever voted for as a matter of fact. Really? And I voted for him yeah. more as saying that, that here's a force of nature, like the tsunami mm. that I was talking about. 
And, you know, right or wrong, he's coming through. And he did. So what um, we we spoke about how you have a, a, a dark and tragic vision for the future of the country. Well, what else about even even though I even though I think I found even though I think I, 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 I punched a little uh, hole of, of sunlight in, in the darkness there, I hope. <laughs> but so what else do you expect? What else, have you saw this this large movement coming? What else do you see now? What do you see now? Twelve years after that, twelve years after that great book. And by the way, I, I want to encourage everyone listening. I please, please read Lee Harris's books. They're they're fantastic. They're 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 they're, they're brilliant. So I really want to encourage everyone to to, to read your well, books. Thank but, you. So, uh, well, what do you see coming I have, now? Well, I, I guess as I grow older, my crystal ball is getting darker. But it's, I, <laughs> as they say, I, right right now there's so many imponderables. Like for example, right. will Biden will Biden continue? To, will he run again? Right. Uh, will, will the Democrats will the Democrats say, listen, we're going to really lose unless we get somebody who who is more middle of the road? But who are they going to get? There's nobody right. really there for them. Right. Uh, and the question, of course, will Trump run again? I think, I mean, mm. I don't want Trump to run again. I'm emphatic mm. about that. I think there are people like, like Ron DeSantis that I would, I, I, I would vote for in a heartbeat. Mm. Uh, and, but, but these are imponderables that I really can't see. And I think that the, the opportunity for both tragedy and for renewal, as you would, as you hope mm. for, is are, are there. But right now, I think we're, I think the next, the next election is going to be a real critical. A real a mm-hmm. crisis in the, in the in the medical sense, where it's like, yeah. you know, either we're going, either it's going to kill us or we're going to pull through. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's what I'm afraid of. And my hope is that someone like like DeSantis will run and get uh, wide, widely widely supported and be you know be elected and mm-hmm. and bring his you know his his sanity and his courage you know right. to the White House and competency. You know, we need you know this complete this complete collapse of competency in the in the American government is disturbing. That to everybody. that 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 is that. <laughs> Is really, we have to have you on again to talk about this because this is an amazing subject. Just like right, the lack of, the lack of total. I mean, but we're talking, uh, uh, we're talking across the board here, across the entire yeah. establishment. I mean, these people, yeah. it's not just they're incoherent. It's like, what, what do they do? What are they being? What are they learning to do in the schools that they're supposed to be learning to do things? Oh, and does. what did they do when they get to these places? That's why I think it's it's very hard. For people, often, uh, often me included, it's very hard for for me sometimes to assume. Well, of course they're doing this intentionally. Their plan, for instance, they just want to give Iran a bomb because they can't be serious about negotiating because this is this is not a negotiation. And you know, it just goes up and down, up and down the line. Everything they do, it's just it's scored with with incompetence. Yeah, no, I, I think that you're, you know, you can question the wisdom of leaving the Iranian deal, but the, you right. cannot question the, the insanity of trying to get back into it. I mean, at this right. point in time, <laughs> I mean, it's just right. nuts. Like so much of what, so much is going on. And here again, this is, I, I say this as, as a person who is, as I said, I mean, Trump was the first Republican I ever voted for. Hmm. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not a card carrying, you know, wacko conservative at all. I mean, I, I was, I spent a lot of time reading Marx when I was younger and I was, the first thing, <laughs> was, right. the first, the first thing I ever saw my, myself in print was a letter to the editor of the Atlanta paper defending democratic socialism. 
So when I was oh, wow, so. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll pick up our next conversation with that. You were okay. an early member of the DSA. That's right. right. Fascinating. <laughs> well, Lee, thank you so much for for your time and your information, and especially as always, your great insights. What's been a really fun time. It's always great to talk to you. And I'm really glad that that we had a chance to do it this afternoon. And I want to thank thank everyone who's been listening. And please, if you have been listening, uh, encourage uh, friends and family who need to hear this conversation, who who need to hear Lee Harris, um, not me, but who need to hear the different things that Lee Harris is talking about. And again, I, 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 I have to encourage you. I want to encourage you. You need to read Lee Harris's books. They're, they're really fantastic and um, give you so much to think about. And I, I just realized right now, one thing I wanted to talk about and we didn't get to talk about, but, but we are going to have Lee on again soon. We're going to talk about Sparta and boy gangs and how in some ways this is this is also a big part of democracy. So how's that for a cliffhanger? Sparta and boy that gangs sounds great. and Lee Harris, <laughs> and we're going to bring him back on soon. So again, Thank you very much for listening to The Lee Smith Show. I will be back um, next Saturday at 4 p.m. In the meantime, have a really uh, wonderful rest of your weekend, a blessed Sunday, a great week. Take care, and um, I'll talk to you um, next week. Thanks all. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.